Good morning to each and every one. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Also, please be ready to turn to chapters 1 and 2. So our principal text is 1 Samuel 9, but uh, be ready at any moment, a moment's warning, to turn over to chapters 1 and 2. Also, while you're at it, I hope I can keep all this straight in my mind, also find Acts chapter 13, just to make your life a little complicated this morning. If I've lost you already, again, that's 1 Samuel 9. We're going to make reference to chapters 1 and 2. And you're also going to need, at some point toward the end, Acts chapter 13. Now for something completely different. Uh, I was able to do a little fishing yesterday morning, and... um, My fishing partner snagged a large bass and was frantically working it in, and the bass broke the line and made off with his hook and rubber worm. An hour and a half later, I reeled in a large bass, and we removed my hook and rubber worm. And what do you think we found inside? His hook and rubber worm. Now, what is the chance of that? Chance, Christian, you, uh, you who affirm God's sovereignty unapologetically, do not be afraid of the word chance as long as we use it carefully. It is appropriate to use the word chance in a mathematical sense, probability. A 10% chance it might rain today. We are speaking of a mathematical equation. That's perfectly acceptable. But you know and I know that we never never attribute anything that happens to the power of chance. Oh, that was chance. No, friend, it was not. That was fortune. Most certainly was not. That was luck. Forgive me if it offends you. That is an absurdity. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as fortune. There is no such thing as luck. There is such a thing as Almighty God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is but one truth that we are going to affirm and celebrate today in the context of 1 Samuel chapter 9, a sermon which is entitled, Lost Donkeys. And that will become apparent as to why in just a few moments. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 9 for us. I invite you to follow along. Let me remind you of what has happened so far. Uh, The Israelites, a long, long time ago, uh, they're living in the land of Canaan. They are a loose, very loose confederation of 12 tribes. No centrality. They're governed by a council of elders. And God raises up judges to help govern them. The last of these judges, and perhaps the greatest of these judges, is Samuel. Samuel's getting old. His death is just around the corner. And so the elders of this loose confederation of 12 tribes, they approach Samuel. And their request is very simple, give us a king. Nothing wrong with the request per se. As a matter of fact, 300 years of history has demonstrated their need for a king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The problem with their request was this, the motive which lay behind it. In requesting a king, they were actually doing what? They were rejecting God as their king. And they were again, yet again, in their sordid history, manifesting their propensity, the inclination of their heart away from God to idolatry. God warns them through Samuel as to what will happen if they have the sort of king that they want. This king will take everything from them, including their freedom. They will not listen. They will not heed the warning. No, but we will have a king over us. And So God says through Samuel, fine, I'm going to give you what you want. And Samuel commands the people. Right at the end of chapter 8, go, every man, to his city. 
And a period of waiting begins until God answers their request. We immediately enter into chapter 9. And the author basically does two things. Firstly, he introduces us to Saul. Here's the king they want. And then he explains how God in his sovereignty brings Saul to Samuel. And so follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And at a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And they came to the land of Zuf. Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now there's a parenthetical note here in verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the hill to the city. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And Samuel saw Saul. The Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest? Of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin, why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you, eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, 
Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Now, friends, how are we to approach this? How are we to get to the heart of what God is saying here? Last Sunday, I explained that when it comes to the Old Testament, a passage such as this, we look at it from four angles. The New Testament tells us to do this. The New Testament tells us to turn to the Old Testament and look for examples that instruct us. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. The New Testament also tells us to turn to the Old Testament and look for truths that encourage us, strengthen us, comfort that. Paul tells us that precise thing in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. The New Testament also tells us to turn to the old and look for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself points us in that direction, points us down that road in John 5, 39. And fourthly, the New Testament tells us that when we are to read the Old Testament, we are to look for the way of salvation, the very gospel itself. Paul tells us that in very explicit, clear language in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. That's how we handle the old. We don't open up the Old Testament and look for little stories and interesting things to encourage us, which we can moralize and turn into everyday lessons for our lives. No, we turn to the Old Testament as the New Testament informs us we must. And we approach it from these different angles and by the Spirit of God glean what is intended for us. And so we're going to stick with that approach. That's how we're going to address this text today. And what we're going to do is we're going to basically come at it from from three different angles. You see, the author has done two things. Firstly, he has introduced Saul in the first couple of verses. So we're going to go there, and we're going to fulfill what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. And we are going to look for examples that instruct us. And then we're going to consider what the author of this chapter says about how God brought Saul to Samuel. And here we're going to turn to Romans 15, 4. And look specifically for truths, truths concerning our God, which are designed, intended to encourage us. And then we're going to combine that third and fourth one, John 5, 39, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And we're going to look at this passage in its entirety and look for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. Now, did you get all that? I hope so. I need to take a breath. I'm reflecting back now. Did I get all that? Yes, I think I said that right. That's exactly how we're going to approach this. We're going to break it into three. Look at that introduction, how Saul is introduced, looking for examples that instruct us. Then we're going to look at how God, through those lost donkeys, brings Saul to Samuel. Truths, great truths for our encouragement. And then we're going to look for King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the first order of business, an example for our instruction. It comes out of the introduction. Let me read it again for you. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward... He was taller than any of the people. The author is very intentional. He has a purpose before him. He has a very specific goal. It is this. He wants to convey three things. He wants, us, he wants to tell us three things about Saul. This king who will be the answer to the nation's desire. Give us a king so that we might be like all the nations. The first thing we learn about Saul, the first thing he tells us, has to do with Saul's society. Verse 1, he belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. In case we miss it, it's mentioned twice. There was a man of Benjamin. And then we have a little genealogy. As Saul's father, it's traced back through Kish and several other difficult names to pronounce. And then it's repeated again toward the end of the first verse, a Benjaminite. There is Saul's society. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. So what? Big deal. 
When was the last time we read of the tribe of Benjamin in God's Word? It was the book of Judges, uh, chapters 19 through 21. And in those chapters, uh, we read of what can only be described as a grotesque incident. There's a Levite and his concubine. Bad in and of itself, but it gets worse. Uh, They're traveling home, and uh, it's a long journey. They're looking for a place to stay for the night. They don't want to stay in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem hasn't been conquered yet. Jerusalem is still under the control of the Jebusites. They don't want to stay in a city controlled by foreign inhabitants. They want to find a good, safe, wholesome Israelite city. Hmm, Tongue-in-cheek. And so they find the city of Gibeah. And they decide that's where they're going to spend the night. A man invites them into his home. During the night, the leading men of the city surround the home. They demand, they demand that their fellow citizen hand over the Levite because they want to commit homosexual rape. The Levite pushes his concubine out the door. She's dead by morning. Then the Levite sends word to the rest of the tribes of Israel as to what has transpired in the city of Gibeah. The tribes gather as one man. Gibeah is part of Benjamin. And they demand that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, hand over the men, the citizens of Gibeah. Benjamin refuses. Evidently, their fellow countrymen, their fellow tribe, have no problem with what has transpired at Gibeah. There's a battle in which Benjamin is decimated. And Benjamin is reduced to 600 men. Friends, Saul, first king of Israel, nice society. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. It gets worse than that. You just turn over to chapter 10 for a moment and just look briefly at verse 26. Saul also went to his home, wait for it, at Gibeah. That is his society. There is no evidence whatsoever in the entire word of God that Benjamin ever repented of that incident or that the men of Gibeah ever repented of that incident. When Samuel comes, when rather Saul is brought to Samuel and Samuel reveals to Saul what is going to happen and he begins to hint of the throne and begins to hint as to God's plan to make Saul king, How does Saul respond initially in verse 21 of chapter 9? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Oh, what humility. That is not humility. That is circumstantial. The least tribe in all of Israel. Why? Because the tribe was morally depraved. That incident which occurred in Gibeah stands out in the history of the nation of Israel as a demonstration of what? That Gibeah had become the new Sodom. That is the depth to which the depravity which was rampant within the nation of Israel had plunged their society. And this is going to be their king. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is from the city of Gibeah. Second thing the author wants to convey to us concerning Saul has to do with his family. Yes, his father is Kish. We're told one thing concerning Kish right at the end of the very first verse. He is a man of wealth. Nothing wrong with wealth per se. So what? Big deal. Why is this mentioned? It is mentioned again because the author is being very intentional. You remember in this book, there are three principal characters. There is Samuel, there is Saul, there is David. We consider the life of Samuel. We're now considering the life of Saul. The account of their lives and ministries, each of them begins with a genealogy. You go back to chapter 1, the first couple of verses, and there we are introduced to Samuel. Here, now Saul becomes the principal figure. We're introduced to Saul. And in both accounts, the author is being intentional. He's comparing them. 
And he's giving us their family history. He's giving us a little glimpse into their genealogy. And he mentions specifically their respective fathers. And so Samuel's father is Elkanah. Saul's father is Kish. And the author makes just one passing comment concerning these men. In the case of Elkanah, it is this, that annually he and his family would go up to Shiloh to worship God. In the case of Saul's father, Kish, it is this. He's a man of wealth. Do you see how the author is contrasting the two? He is making a comparison so that we behold their family heritage and we behold the difference between the two. Elkanah, a man preoccupied with the worship of God. Kish, a man preoccupied with the earthly. A man preoccupied with wealth. The effect, the detrimental effect that this has on Saul becomes clearly evident throughout the text. You know how it's glaringly evident? This this escaped my notice. I, I have studied this book I don't know how many times. It escaped my notice until the last couple of weeks. You know how this, the, the, the impact is so obvious in the life of Saul? Saul has no idea who Samuel is. He has no idea who Samuel is. His donkeys are lost. It's his servant who tells him there's a man of God in this city. Oh, there is? What's his, what's, what's his name? Samuel. He has no knowledge of this man of God. He has no knowledge of this prophet. He has no knowledge of this judge. And as he enters the city, he finds a man. He says, I'm looking for Samuel. He's talking to Samuel. He doesn't recognize him when he sees him. Not only only is it that Saul has asked, how is this possible? Samuel has been the leading judge and prophet in the nation of Israel for over 40 years. And Saul has never even heard of the man. Not only that. When his servant suggests, hey, let's go see if he has any insight concerning our lost donkeys, what's Saul's response? Well, I need some money to pay him. There's the cry of a self-righteous man, if I've ever heard it. He thinks he needs to pay him off. He thinks God has to be paid. Saul has no interest in the man of God. Saul has no interest in God. Uh, Saul's concern is simply pragmatic. I'm looking for donkeys. Can Can you help me? You see, wealth is morally neutral per se, but Kish is a man preoccupied with wealth. He is preoccupied with the earthly to such a degree that his own son, who has grown up in his house, has absolutely, he has never heard of Samuel. Now, I know this is Mother's Day, but I'm going to actually speak to fathers. I think it applies to mothers too, but we're speaking of Elkanah and Kish. We're speaking of fathers, and I think there is a lesson, an example for our instruction here that is perfectly clear. It yells out from the text that is simply this, Father, what kind of legacy are you leaving to your children? What kind of legacy are you leaving behind to your children? Hear these words. Samuel saw a man occupied with worship. Saul saw a man occupied with wealth. Samuel saw a man consumed with the heavenly. Saul saw a man consumed with the earthly. Samuel saw a man enamored with the divine. Saul saw a man enamored with the carnal. Samuel saw a man, Kish, who longed for God. Samuel saw a man, Elkanah, who longed for God. Saul saw a man, Kish, who longed for his lost donkeys. That is their legacy. That is their family heritage. And that is the second thing the author impresses upon us as he introduces this man who will become the first king of Israel. Third thing is this. It has to do with his appearance. First has to do with his society. He belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. The second has to do with his family. His father is a man of wealth. The third has to do with his looks, his appearance. He is tall and handsome. It begins in verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. This is the kind of king the people want. 
They are not the least bit interested in the internal. They are consumed with the external. Matthew Henry, he wrote centuries ago, and I think he said this, he very whimsical in his comments on this. He penned the following. When God chose a king after the people's heart, he selected this huge, tall man who, if he had no other good qualities, would at least look great. He gives them precisely what they want. They are a people enamored with the flesh. They are a people enamored with the external. They are a people enamored with the kings of the nations. They have rejected God. They have again manifested their idolatry by rejecting a king after their own hearts. And God now gives them precisely what they want, a reflection of themselves, his society, a man who was of the tribe of Benjamin, his family, of a father who was preoccupied with wealth, and Saul himself, a man who was absolutely clueless when it comes to the religious life of the nation. And a man, yeah, he's good-looking. The people are going to love him. But he is an empty shell. Al Mohler said the following, We know that character matters when we hire a babysitter. How can it not matter when we are calling a leader? The nation of Israel could not care less. Give us a king, just like the nations. Give us a king who reflects ourself. This is the king they get. This is the king God gives them. Saul is uh, he's representative, really. I mean, Saul is indicative of the state of the nation in its entirety. Saul epitomizes what we can describe as a man of the flesh. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that the, the one who walks according to the flesh sets his mind on the things of the flesh. But the one who walks according to the Spirit sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. It sounds convoluted. What are you talking about, Paul? The, the expression, set your mind, is, is very simple. To set our mind on something means we're devoted to something. We're preoccupied with something. And so we say of the athlete, like he has set his mind on competing at the next Olympics. And so it is occupying his purposes and his intentions. It is his goal. Or we say of the student, he has set his mind on his SAT scores or doing well on that assignment, that test. It is something to which they are devoted. And so Paul basically says, look, when it comes to humanity, friend, when it comes to this room, there are only two groups of people. You fall into one of these two categories. You are not that special. I am not that special. You fall into group A or you fall into group B. There are those whose mind is set on the flesh. And therefore, they walk according to the flesh. And there are those who walk according to the Spirit and therefore whose mind, that is their hearts, their beings, their goals, their ends, their purposes, their desires are set upon the Spirit. God, in his wisdom, he illustrates this for us with with marvelous couplets throughout all of Scripture. And so you have over here the man of flesh, whose mind is set on the flesh. You have over here the man of the Spirit, whose mind is set on the Spirit. We see it, first of all, in whom? Cain and Abel. And then we see it further on in biblical history, in whom? Ishmael and Isaac. And then we see it right after Ishmael and Isaac in Esau and Jacob. And now in 1 Samuel, we see it again, the difference between Saul and a king after God's own heart, David. You see, Saul is a man of the flesh. Saul is a man who walks according to the flesh. And therefore, Saul is a man who sets his mind on the things of the flesh. It is remarkable. I mean, Saul enjoys a tremendous position. A man's going to be king, after all, 40 years. He enjoys a tremendous relationship, influence. The prophet Samuel, who will be alive and will accompany him and stay with him through much of his reign. He enjoys a tremendous experience. The workings of the Spirit of God, whereby Saul himself will fall among the prophets and prophesy. And yet, despite his tremendous position, his tremendous relationship, and his tremendous experience, 
He is a man after the flesh. He's a man who walks according to the flesh. And he is a man who has set his mind upon the things of the flesh. Friends, you are in one of those two categories. My, my fear, and one, one thing that burdens me, In our day, as I look out at the church, and as I look in at our church, is the prevalence, the prevalence, how widespread this is, how rampant this is, of men and women who enjoy a tremendous position, a tremendous influence and relationship, a tremendous experience but whose minds are clearly set on the flesh. We are a carnal people. We are, I've said it. Friends, to some degree, we are a carnal church. It grieves me at times. It really does. And I, and I don't, I'm not trying to be, I'm beating myself up this day. The prevalence of carnality and the things that transpire, even among those who claim to be a holy and set-apart people, It does not grieve us like it should. It does not break our hearts as it ought. And friends, if we fall into that category, friend, I beg you to hear these words. You are fooling no one. God is not fooled. And God is not mocked. He knows the heart and he judges the secrets of the heart. Are you with Cain or Abel? Are you with Ishmael or Isaac? Are you with Esau or Jacob? Are you with Saul or are you with David? Are you someone who walks according to the flesh, that when you look at your life right now and you're honest with yourself, the thing you get most excited about can only be described as carnal and earthly and temporal? Or are you an individual who is, despite your many failing shortcomings and sins, let's not pretend otherwise, Your mind is set on God. Your mind is set on things above. Your longing, the longing of your heart and the desire of your heart is fixed on eternal realities and we live accordingly. This is a call to self-examination as ever there's been a call to self-examination, my friends. Saul, Saul, he is a figure. Saul is a biblical figure who has troubled me ever since I was a youngster. Probably troubled many of you. Such an enigma. How is this possible? Simply because he was of the flesh. That is an example for our instruction. And that is a warning we dare not turn a deaf ear to. But examine ourselves and understand this, that he who walks according to the flesh sets his mind on the things of the flesh, and the end of the flesh is death. As Paul's words, Romans 8, Romans 8, 6. He who walks according to the Spirit sets his mind upon the things of the Spirit, the end of which is life and peace. It is the difference between being an unbeliever and a believer, a non-Christian and a Christian, damned and saved. It is the difference between being outside the family of God and inside the family of God. It is the difference between outside the church, no matter what I might profess, and being inside the church. It is a difference between being still dead in my trespasses and sins and being born again by the power of the Spirit of God. That is an example for our instruction. Secondly, we come to a truth for our encouragement. It begins in verse 3, goes all the way through to verse 27. It is summarized, what we have in that long section, just a series of events, an interesting story, fascinating story, but its significance is unpacked for us. In beginning in verse 15, because here we have a, 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 just a little thought inserted. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had, the Lord had already revealed to Samuel what was going to happen. And so here we're given a truth that encourages us. And look at what we read beginning in verse 16. Tomorrow about this time, so this is what God says to, to Samuel, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. 
And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Two precious truths for our encouragement. The first is this, the sovereignty of God is right there in verse 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Kish has lost his donkeys. Why? Kish has decided to send his Saul, his son Saul, to look for these donkeys. Why? Saul's search has brought him to the land of Zuf, the city of Ramah. Why? Saul is ready to go home, but his servant knows there is a prophet, Samuel, in this city. Why? As they approach this city, they meet these women beside the well. They tell him that the prophet is indeed in the city because it's a day of sacrifice, so he'll be there making preparations. Why? As they enter the city, Samuel just happens to be exiting, and Saul just happens to approach him and says, do you know where the house of the prophet is? Why? Friends, this is not chance. This is God working all things according to the counsel of his will. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Now, we have this wonderfully celebrated. I told you we were going to turn back to chapter 2. Now's the time. All the way back to chapter 2. Hannah's song. Because Hannah celebrates this great truth in a beautiful fashion. It's the verses we're memorizing as a church this month. I'm going to read from verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. There is only one and blessed sovereign. There is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is only one who dwells in unapproachable light. There is only one who has set and established the very foundations of the universe. There is only one who upholds all things by the word of his power. And there is only one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friend, whatever your circumstance, whatever your condition, here is the encouragement of scriptures. What an encouragement as we face the mundane and trivial. Do we believe God orchestrates all things, great and small? What an encouragement as we face innumerable causes of fear and stress. We believe God is working through these things for a purpose we do not understand. What an encouragement when we experience ill treatment. Someone hurts us. Someone offends us. Someone mistreats us. Someone maligns us. Do we believe God brings good from such things? What an encouragement as we witness changes and calamities on a global scale. Do we really believe the pillars of the earth are the Lord? Our God is sovereign. The second truth from which we should derive much encouragement this day is God's mercy. It's manifested in two things he says, beginning in verse 16. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Here's what you're going to do. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Here's the first instance in which we behold God's mercy, God's goodness. What is this man going to do? He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. The people are getting exactly what they want in Saul. But despite their idolatry, constant, repeated idolatry, despite their carnality, Despite their insistence upon having a king and rejecting God as their king, despite Saul's carnality, despite Saul's disqualification to ever to be the king over anything, we see God's goodness, do we not? 
We see God's unfailing and unwavering commitment to his people, do we not? We see God promising to use even this man, who is a man after the people's heart, who is a man of flesh, he is going to use them to do what? To bring temporal salvation to his people. He will use this man in his mercy and in his goodness to deliver his people from their oppressors, the Philistines. Secondly, into verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Restrain them how? He's going to bring some centralization to this loose confederation of 12 tribes. The days of the judges, political anarchy, social decay, moral depravity. The day in which there was no king, therefore every man did exactly what was his right in his own eyes. That through this man, who is an idolater, Through this man who is of the flesh, through this man who is the mirror image of the nation over which he will be king, even through him, God in his mercy and in his goodness will bring a measure of moral restraint and stability to the nation. Therein we behold his mercy and his goodness. Friend, there are two truths. Christian, there are two truths. That as you seek to fulfill Romans 15.4, where Paul tells us whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scriptures we might have hope. As we seek to do that, as we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures, the Scriptures which are designed for our encouragement, that we might endure, that we might have hope, here are two truths under which you and I must live, unwavering. The absolute sovereignty of God, his greatness. And the abounding mercy of God, his goodness. And as we consider our God and take this God as our Father, here is the reality, the unchanging reality under which we must live. It is simply this. His fatherly, wise disposal in every condition and in every circumstance. Live under those two truths, his greatness and his goodness. And live under this unchanging reality, his wise fatherly disposal in every condition and circumstance. And you will prove the words of Thomas Manton true. The design of Scripture is to bring us to believe in God. And this next one, this is the one we struggle with. And to wait upon him for our salvation. We do that through, by immersing ourselves in Scripture and beholding this wonderful unfolding of his greatness as seen in his sovereignty, his goodness as seen in his mercy. And we find that Scripture is a divine comfort. By Scripture, the Spirit gives us a delightful sense of God's love, a sense which is beyond the bare act of our own understanding. We discover that Scripture is a strong comfort. Earthly comforts, things which we seek to hide in, they are not affliction-proof. They are not death-proof. And they are not judgment-proof. They cannot stand in the storm, but the encouragement of Scripture stands in all storms. Scripture is a full comfort. There is no trouble for which Scripture does not offer sufficient encouragement. And Scripture is a reviving comfort. Hear these words, please. When the fire is about to go out, we add fuel to the embers. When our spiritual life wanes in intensity due to affliction, we ask God to quicken us. And he will only do so through one means, friend. He does so through the Scriptures, reviving our sense of his sovereignty, greatness, and reviving our sense of his mercy, his goodness. Now, the third thing we want to do with this chapter is we want to see Jesus Christ. We want to see his kingdom. To do that, we need to turn back to chapter 2. I told you we were going to jump around. I told you it was going to be difficult. We must go back to chapter 2, and we need to hear again from Hannah, because Hannah's song instructs us in terms of our interpretation and understanding of the entire book. 
And Hannah, as she celebrates God's gift in Samuel and hearing her prayers for a son, yes, she celebrates who God is. She celebrates the wonder of his sovereignty. And then she gets messianic, pointing to Christ himself. And look at what the words she utters in verse 10. And Here she speaks of God's kingdom. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord, here we have the extension, the expansion of his kingdom. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And now listen carefully to what she says at the end of verse 10, remembering at this stage of the game, there is no king in Israel. It's the days of the judges. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Hannah assumes the role of a prophetess there. And she is building on what God has revealed earlier in Scripture concerning a coming king, concerning a coming Messiah. And she is affirming this great hope, this great expectation that God himself will exalt his anointed. We come to chapter 9 and we discover that Saul is God's anointed. Saul is of the flesh. Saul is carnal. Saul is earthly. Saul, Saul, Saul is a man whose, whose heart is not set on God. Saul is a man who walks according to the flesh. Friend, understand this, please. Saul is merely another small step in the realization of God's plan of redemption. That in Saul, yes, we have the elevation of the Lord's anointed. And in Saul, God is demonstrating an essential truth. It is what? that when this true king comes, he will not be a man who walks according to the flesh. He will be a man who walks according to the spirit. He will not be a man who does whatever he pleases. He will be a man who does all my will. We have that man prefigured in the next king, David. And then we have the realization, the fulfillment of that promise, that great expectation in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I told you to find Acts chapter 13. Now's when you need it. And listen carefully to what I'm going to read, beginning in verse 18. Paul is preaching. And here he gives us a wonderful survey of the plan of redemption, a wonderful overview of biblical history, beginning in the 18th verse. And for about 40 years, he, that is God, put up with them, that's the Israelites after they came out of Egypt, in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations, remember under Joshua and the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this, we're into verse 20 now, took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, For 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Now wait for it. Verse 23, we reach the climax. Of this man's, that's David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus, as he promised. There you have the unfolding in just those four or five verses in its entirety, all of biblical history. There you have the eternal plan of redemption. It begins with a promise way back after the fall in Genesis 3. That promise is developed in the days of the patriarchs. The kingdom promised. And then in the days of the judges, we have the kingdom foreshadowed. Those 300 years demonstrate that while there is no king in Israel, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And then we enter the days of the kings, and we have the kingdom foreshadowed, first in Saul, then in David, then in Solomon. And then we enter the era of the prophets, and we have the kingdom prophesied. And then we open our New Testaments. And we come to Mark chapter 1, and we see this man, Jesus Christ, going forth preaching, declaring, the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom is at hand. What kingdom? The kingdom that had been promised, the kingdom that had been foreshadowed, the kingdom that had been prefigured, the kingdom that had been prophesied, the kingdom is now at hand, inaugurated with his first coming, established, realized, consummated at his second coming. In the interim, this great cry, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The king has come. The promise has been fulfilled. The Savior has arrived. We have it all mirrored in Saul. Yes, God exalting his anointed. Not Saul. Saul, all that is earthly, all that is sinful, all that is wrong, all that is fleshly. Pointing to, crying out for the need for God's king. Exemplified in David. And ultimately fulfilled in the person of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's our king, friends. There is the fulfillment of God's kingdom, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. There we have our king coming forth who is mighty to save and to conquer. There we have our king who delivers us from our greatest enemies, not some tribe known as the Philistines, but saving us from our curse. He became a curse for us. Saving us from our sin, he became sin for us. Saving us from the penalty that we deserve, the judgment of the living God, by bearing that judgment as he dies on our behalf at Calvary's cross. And the cry of this king is as it has ever been. Friend, please hear this. You must repent and you must believe in the gospel. Our Father in glory above We do give you thanks for this gospel. We give you thanks for the great hope of salvation which resides in it and the great offer of forgiveness of sins. We praise you, the only sovereign. Again, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You alone are enthroned above the heavens. You alone govern the stars and the planets, the wind and the rain birds and the animals, the whole course, the entire course of human history. We praise you because every good gift comes from above. From you, the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We praise you for your many abounding mercies. Father, may you strengthen our faith, our hope, our love. May you keep us as we wait on you. May you enlarge our joy as we look to the one who has loved us and has given himself up for us, our King Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.